Well, if you got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to John chapter 13. We're continuing to make our way through the Gospel of John together. And last week, if you were here, you will know that we looked at the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And today we're going to take a look at what happened on the heels of that event. Uh, Really, this entire section... Of John chapter 13 to John chapter 17. It's a fascinating section of scripture. And part of the reason that it's fascinating is that everything that takes place in these five chapters actually takes place in the course of one evening. Uh, This section is often referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse. This is the last time that he will be together with his disciples before his his arrest and his crucifixion. And everything that he says in these chapters is to prepare them for what comes next. I think that in and of itself should make us want to sit up and listen. Uh, If you knew that you had 24 hours to live... And you were to gather together your closest friends, your family members, that sort of thing. You probably would not spend that time talking about the weather, right? You would spend that time talking about what was most important to you. And you might choose to talk about a a lot of different things uh, during that time. But whatever you did choose to talk about would reveal something about your priorities. And so it's fascinating to take a look at what Jesus says in these five chapters to his disciples. What were the things that he thought were most important to teach them before his departure? So we're going to begin that by uh, looking at what we find here in John chapter 13. And we're looking at verses 31 to 38 this morning. This is what it says. When he had gone out... Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me Three times. Well, as we think about this passage, I wish that I sort of had, you know, one main theme that we would be exploring here or just one theme to draw your attention to. But there's actually so much that's worth exploring in this section that I think for us just to focus narrowly on love for one another, for instance, would be to sort of flatten out all that Jesus says here. So I'll tell you up front, I don't have great or memorable points for you today. There's no alliteration or anything like that. I'm just going to walk you through this passage under four headings. And the first heading is a surprising revelation. So verse 31 begins like this. 
When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, the he who had gone out was Judas. You just have to back up to verse 30 to see that. To see that. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. It was Judas went out to set in motion this chain of events. Jesus' arrest and being handed over to the authorities. So, when Judas had gone out... Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. So just time out there for a minute. We might have reasonably expected Jesus to say, when Judas had gone out, now is the Son of Man betrayed. Or when Judas had gone out, now is the Son of Man in trouble. But instead what he says is, now after Judas had gone out, now is the Son of Man glorified. So Judas went out to get the authorities, to bring them back, to arrest Jesus. They will return in short order. Listen to what happens immediately after Jesus finishes this discourse with his disciples. In John 18, the beginning of John 18, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, was there with lantern, lanterns and torches and weapons. So if that is what Judas's going out led to, How can Jesus say, now is the Son of Man glorified? Now, maybe that doesn't come as a shock to you because you've heard the story many times. But if you stop to think about it, it is shocking to combine the word glory with the word cross, which is what this led to. That's not an association you would naturally make. So what comes to mind when you think about the word glory? Well, maybe you think about the beauty of creation. Maybe you think along the lines of the psalmist when he said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. That's a natural thing to think about. You know, when you stand on a clear day and you look at the North Shore Mountains or you stand and you look at the the coastline of the Pacific Ocean, one of the words that comes to mind is glorious. And sometimes you just want to call out the words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So we see God's glory in creation. Or maybe when we think of that word glory, we think of God. I mean, it is a biblical word. It's the word that's often used for someone who has an encounter with God. So the psalmist will say, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Or the prophet Ezekiel, he recounts this experience. He says, then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And I fell on my face. You know, when we catch just a glimpse of the glory of God, It causes us to shrink back or to fall on our face or to fall on our knees. God is glorious. 
Now, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man here. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. That was no accident. The Son of Man was a messianic term used to describe the Messiah who was to come. Here's what the prophet Daniel saw in his vision or visions. He said, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So the son of man is associated with glory. That's not surprising. But the kind of glory we would have naturally associated with the Son of Man would be the glory of dominion, would be the glory of having a kingdom to which all people subscribe or all people bow down to. And the shocking part is that the place where God chose to reveal His glory was actually in the cross. That's what Jesus means When he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. The words we would typically associate with the cross would be things like horror or revulsion or disgust. Something along those lines. But Jesus connects glory to the cross. We sometimes think of Suffering and glory is sort of a two-step process, right? First the suffering and then the glory. So in athletics, we'll talk about things like no pain, no gain, right? You, you have to go through the hard times before you get to that place of glory. If you start a business, you, ha- you know you have to go through the startup phase first, right? The long hours, the sacrifices, all of that. Then you get to the glory. Then you get to the profits, And there is truth in that, but actually the cross reveals the glory is actually in the suffering. The death of Jesus on the cross, his suffering for our sins, that's where you see the glory of God on display. I think there's another thing to notice about the glory as it's described here. Notice that it's a reciprocal or a shared glory. Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Got it? Right, a bit of a tongue twister. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The logic of what Jesus is saying there is that the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. Now, I think we understand this on the human level. I actually have some experience with this where there's this kind of glory that exists between a parent and child or a father and a son. So I will sometimes go to, you know, I've been to my kids' volleyball games, and I, I, I know I've been there on a number of times. You're sitting around or with, a, with a bunch of other parents, and they'll be like, oh, well, which one is your son? And I'll point him out, and they'll say, oh, wow, you know, he's a, he's a good player. There's kind of glory that comes from that, right? Usually that's followed up with, well, how is it that you're so short? 
But, but that's, there's kind of a glory that comes from that. The son does something and the father gets some glory. And my kids have some experience with that on the flip side. They'll meet someone and, and that person will say, oh, you're Pastor Lee's kid. You know, he was our college pastor or he did our wedding. Now, admittedly, it's not much glory, but there's some kind of glory. The, the father does something and the child gets some glory from it. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's going to glorify the father by what he does. And in turn, the father glorifies him. So the glory that's talked about here is a shared glory or it's a reciprocal glory between the father and the son. The son glorifies the father and the father glorifies the son. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, listen to what God says in Isaiah 42. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God does not share his glory except with himself. So what is Jesus saying here? The son glorifies the father and the father glorifies the son. And what he is saying is what he's going to say all through this farewell discourse. He's going to say things like, I and the father are one or anyone who has seen me has seen the father. To glorify the son is to glorify the father and the father is pleased to glorify his son. Now, remember, these are among Jesus' final words to his disciples. He apparently thought it was important for them and for us to understand something about the nature of the Godhead, the relationship between the Father and the Son. And as we'll see in the upcoming chapters, the relationship of the Holy Spirit as well. And I point this out because there is a tendency to downplay the importance of theology. I mean, just give me the practical stuff, right? Just tell me what the Bible says about money or about time management or about something practical. And I wrestle with this sometimes as a pastor. Over the past year or so, I've read three or four short books on the Trinity, and those books have actually deepened my love for God. I would at some point like to preach a three- or four-part series on the doctrine of the Trinity. But every time I think about doing that, I'm confronted with my own thoughts of, well, it's not really practical. Or are people going to hang in there for that? Or what about the newcomers? Is is this just going to be too heady for that? Or for them. But, and I say this to myself, is there anything more important for us than to understand the nature of God? A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the, more, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. 
We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And this is true not only of the individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. That is so good. The most important thing about us is what we think about God. So when Jesus goes on to talk about love here, we have to remember it is rooted in the kind of love that exists between the Father and the Son. That's the basis for the love. So let me give you a second heading to describe what we see here, and that is a necessary departure. And this is what we see in verse 33. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And sometimes it, it, it feels like Jesus is speaking in riddles, Right? He alludes to it here, but this is not the first time Jesus had said something like this. Twice in his conversation with the religious leaders, he has said that he's going somewhere and that the place that he's going to, they can't come. So back in chapter 7, it says, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And again in chapter 8, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins or in your sin where I am going, you cannot come. And what Jesus was saying in those conversations with the religious leaders is different than what he was saying here to the disciples. There he was saying, look, because you have rejected me, because you refuse to acknowledge me as the Messiah, you will not be with me in heaven. But notice the tone of what he says to his disciples. He begins by addressing them as little children. Little children, yet a little while I'll be with you. And little children is a term of affection. Jesus is not saying this in a dismissive way. You're just children. My dear children would be an appropriate translation. This is the only time we find this expression in the Gospel of John. But later, when John writes the letter of 1 John, we actually, he uses that same expression seven times. He will say things like, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Or, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Where did John learn that? Where did he learn that kind of affection for those he had care of? Well, he learned it from Jesus. But it's not just the tone of what Jesus says that is different. He's saying something different. He's not saying, where I'm going, you cannot come and you will die in your sins. He's saying, where I am going, you cannot come now, but you will come afterwards. And that's especially clear when you read verse 36, where it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. 
Now, I label this as a necessary departure. Why was it necessary? Why did Jesus have to leave them? Well, that's really what the rest of John 14 to 17 is about. And we're going to explore those themes in some depth over the next number of weeks. But as sort of a preview, we can say there's at least three reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to leave the disciples. And the first one is because Jesus is preparing a place for us. Chapter 14 begins with that promise when it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So that's, what, that's part of the reason Jesus leaves. He goes to prepare a place. The second reason it was necessary for Jesus to depart is because he's going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell all the believers. That becomes one of the major themes of these chapters, that as Jesus goes, he sends the Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. I'll, sp- I'll send the Spirit to you. And then the third reason Jesus had to depart was so that his followers could manifest his glory to the whole world. That's the theme of John 17, Jesus' prayer for the disciples. It's that they will remain in the world and that just as Jesus has glorified the Father, so now all of them will glorify the Father. So his fame will spread even further. So it's a necessary departure. A third thing we encounter here is a new commandment. Uh, Verses 34 and 35, I think, are familiar to us. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I said they are familiar to us. But that doesn't mean we don't need to reflect on them. I like the way New Testament scholar D.A. Carson said it. He said, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Right? Think about that. It's so simple. Love one another as I have loved you, and yet it's so profound. Now, there's lots in this new commandment that I think is worth talking about. Uh, We might begin just by thinking about the, the word new. What does Jesus mean when he says, a new commandment I give to you? The Old Testament prescribed the love of neighbor. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. So Leviticus 19.18, for instance, says, You shall not take vengeance vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So since that is the case, how can Jesus say a new commandment I give to you? What is it that makes this commandment new? Well, I think it's newness is primarily about the new standard of love that is demonstrated in Jesus. Notice that Jesus' command here is not just love one another, but love one another as I have loved you. See, love one another is a little bit vague. There are some people about whom I could say, look, I love them. Like in the sense that I hope they don't get run over by a bus, right? 
But, but that's kind of the extent of it. That's it. That's not the standard. Jesus is the standard. Love one another as I have loved you. And that little word as is a pesky little word. It shows up numerous times in the New Testament, and it does just what it does here. The Apostle Paul will say it this way, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That word as is pesky, but it's so necessary because it prevents us from kind of adopting a sort of squishy or sentimental view of love. How are we supposed to love? We're supposed to love as Jesus did. And how did Jesus love? Well, he loved selflessly. He loved sacrificially. He gave himself up for those he loved. And I think having that standard also helps us understand how it is that Jesus can command us to love. He doesn't say a new suggestion I give you. Love one another. He says a new commandment I give you. Now, we can talk about whether or not God can command our emotions on another day. But the focus here is on a particular kind of love that we are called to. We're called to a selfless, sacrificial, self-giving kind of love. It's an act of love. In the words of DC talk, love is a verb, right? We are to love others as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, we can't really move on from this idea of love without talking about verse 35, where Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have Love for one another. Now, maybe you've heard sermons on that verse before. In my experience, those sermons usually run along the lines of shame and blame. I mean, how is the world ever going to believe our witness when there are so many church splits and denominations and factions? Shame on us for not having a better reputation for loving one another. If we could ever just get our act together, maybe people will believe. Now, you've heard those sermons. I've heard them. I've probably preached them. But look, there's no denying that there are divisions in the church. If they were present in the first century church of Corinth, it shouldn't surprise us that they are present in our churches today. I'm not trying to dismiss that or say those things don't matter, but sometimes I think we just need to remind ourselves of the deep love for one another that does exist in the church. I think that's the norm and not the exception. I've seen it in my travels when I've had the opportunity to minister in different parts of the world, the love that exists between those brothers and sisters, the love they have for me, the, the almost instant love I have for them. And I would say by virtue of being one of the pastors of this church, I have a different vantage point than some of you do. You see some things that I don't, and I see some things that, that you don't. When we started this church, we identified five core values that we hoped would mark or govern everything that we do as a church. So we said we wanted to be shaped by the word. 
We want it to be committed to one another. We want it to be centered on Christ. We want it to be dependent on God, and we want it to be focused on mission. The second of those core values is that we are committed to one another. That's really just another way of saying we are committed to loving one another, to expressing that love to one another. And I get to hear stories that you may not get to hear. I get to hear about what's happening in some of our community groups as people are just loving one another, meeting each other's practical needs. I get to experience that in my own community group. I get to hear stories about the kind of discipleship that happens. I get to hear stories about the the kind of meeting of practical needs that's happening. I get to hear stories about the shepherding that is taking place, helping people walk through difficult seasons in their life. So much of that can only be described as people who genuinely care for and love one another. And I also have the opportunity with some regularity to talk to those who have come from outside the church. They were invited by a friend, they came because they were curious, or they they came for whatever reason. And I can't tell you the number of times that people have said something along the lines of, look, I'm not actually even sure what I believe yet. But there is something about the way these people seem to love one another and care for one another. That's part of the reason I'm here. So I'm not saying that we don't have room to grow in this as a church. We do. I just want to encourage you that the way we love one another, the way we practically express that is a testimony to the watching world. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the best advertisement we have. A fourth heading for us to consider here is a confused disciple. Listen again to verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you truly lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I think those three verses might be my favorite part of this passage. I told you a couple weeks ago that I love Peter. I mean, I love his brashness, his boldness. I also love the fact that he kind of fumbles the ball every time it's handed to him. Right? I mean, he answers every question wrong, and yet he's always the first guy to shoot up his hand the next time. Pick me, pick me. I know this one. Now, he goes on to write such a clear articulation of the gospel in his letters, but at this point, it's usually the fumbles that he's remembered for. And he is confused about two things in these verses. Firstly, he's confused about himself. Peter was confident in his ability to follow Jesus even when the heat would be turned up. He's prepared to die for Jesus. At least that's what he thinks. So Matthew gives us a little bit more of the dialogue from that discussion. And in Matthew 26, it says, Then Jesus said to him, You will all fall away because of me on this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered 
But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter's pretty sure he is more committed than the rest of the disciples. I mean, he's got his stuff together. Even if they all fall away, he won't. But you know the story. Peter does exactly what Jesus says he will do. After Jesus is arrested, there's this servant girl who comes up to him and and she says, hey, you were with that Jesus character, weren't you? And he's like, "I, I don't know who, me? I don't even know what you're talking about. Then he's warming himself by the fire, and someone else asks the question, You're, you were with the Galilean, weren't you? And he's like, nope, wasn't me. He does that three times. He denies any connection to Jesus. So his was a false confidence. Now, I think it's important to note that Peter was not Judas. Judas's betrayal was different than Peter's denial. And I would just say that I identify with Peter. I mean, there are lots of times when I think, well, I'm done with that sin. I'm not falling into that habit again. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to covet. I'm not going to lust. I'm going to be one of the most courteous drivers on the road. Right? Then I get in my car. I got this. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I understand that I ought to have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in my ability on my own to follow Jesus. So Peter was confused about himself, and I think we are too at times. The second thing Peter was confused about was the gospel. Notice what he says to Jesus. I will lay down my life for you. Now, in truth, Peter actually speaks better than he knows because tradition tells us that sometime later, Peter would, in fact, be martyred for Jesus. But at this point, he's actually confused by the very nature of the gospel. He's still thinking in terms of what he will do for Jesus instead of what Jesus will do for him. And this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion tells us to present our best record to God. Do enough good works. Keep these five pillars. Follow these seven principles. Make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad ones. And that was Peter's idea at this point as well. I will die for you. And what he didn't yet yet understand was that he will be saved not because he's willing to die for Jesus. He will be saved because Jesus was willing to die for him. That is the gospel. Now, Peter does come to understand this, of course. It was Peter who penned these words. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, that's the gospel. It's not what we're going to do for Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for us. And what Jesus has done for us is he has lived a perfect life. 
He offered himself as in a sacrificial death. And we are the beneficiaries. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. He wrote this prayer in response to what Jesus had done. He said, Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. Thou hast taken upon thyself what is mine and has given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou was not and hast given to me what I was not. That's the great exchange. It's not what we have done for Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for us. That's the nature of the gospel. And for every one of us who's here today, the way we gain the benefits of that is by placing our faith in Jesus, our trust in him, not our trust in ourselves. If you have never done that before, if you have never said to Jesus, I know that on my own, I cannot close this gap between me and you. But because of your sacrifice, your substitutionary death, I can be right with God. If, you, if you've never done that before, you ought to place your faith in Jesus and ask him to do that. So we're going to move to a time of communion. Let me just pray before we do that. Father, we want to thank you for your grace that is so evident in our lives, in our daily lives, and sometimes in surprising ways. Even here, as we see that that the glory is actually in the cross, that your love was displayed in its fullest as Jesus hung on that cross in our place. God, may we never lose sight of that. May our confidence not be in ourselves, but in you. And may we understand that ultimately it's not what we have done for you, but what you have done for us. And as a result, then, may we please you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.